Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley and I'm the publisher on Women's Agenda. I am here with our editor-in-chief, Tala Lambert. Hello, Tala. Hey, Ange. Today's agenda, we'll be looking at the woman who became one of 23 CEO appointments. Uh, So I think you can guess that the other 22 went to men. A little from the Safety Summit. And we have an interview with Grace Jennings, who is the author of The Yes Woman and has quite a few tips for all of us. Thank you for listening. So, Tyler, how are you? Hey, Ange. I'm good this week. How are you? I'm good. I'm looking forward to your interview with Grace Jennings, author of The Yes Woman, because I say yes way too much in my life and it causes me a lot of trouble. (laughs) I'd like to say that that's not true, but I have watched you say yes to many things for many years. (laughs) Thank you. Wow. Thank you. So I should probably read this book and listen to this interview. I think it's a book (laughs) to me. I mean, it's a really good book. So yes, we'll get into that soon. Well, yeah, there's, uh, I just don't have time for all the things I say yes to. And it's like this weird kind of conflict where I want to, you know, be nice to everyone. <laughs> and, you know, you end up just disappointing people instead. Anyway, yeah. my experiences, I'd be an excellent case study. We have got a lot to discuss this week, but let's start with a win for women. What is your win? My win is a documentary that's coming out next week. Um, which I have already been fortunate to see a little preview of. It's called Strong Female Lead, and it's a documentary chronicling the prime ministership of Julia Gillard. And while it does make for incredibly confronting watching, uh, it is also just a really powerful reminder of I guess where we've gotten to, but also just how brilliant a leader she was, but what she was up against. And I think it's kind of just something that everyone should sink their teeth into once it comes out on SBS. I think it releases on the 15th. It's just a a really brilliant, illuminating documentary. And the directors and the producers of it, um, a strong all-female team that put it together, And yes, I just hope everyone gets behind it. Yeah, I can't wait to see that. My win, uh, I'm going to share two wins. The second one carries a little more cynicism. So, you know, I like to go there. So so my first win, so I'm going to go international on this. And it does come against the backdrop of what has occurred in Texas, which is absolutely awful, where we've seen how Texas has um, moved to ban abortion basically and incentivize citizens to pursue legal action against those who aid a woman seeking a pregnancy termination, which is basically this roundabout way that has been orchestrated to make it really, really difficult to seek abortion. And already abortion clinics have had to close and women have had to go into other states. And it's just an awful situation, especially we'll see it being like a bit of a domino effect and other states are expected to follow. I might just say that on that idea of incentivizing, that basically if uh, this is how it was described to me, if the Uber driver that takes a woman to uh, get a termination could be fined under this new law. So obviously anyone then supporting the doctor that is there, any nursing staff who are there, the receptionist, everyone is fined separately. It is awful. Can I just make one point on that as well, Ange? One thing that I just found so horrific reading this week was I think it was the governor of Texas came out and said this isn't um, a policy that's actually banning 
uh, or legislation that's banning abortion, women can still seek an abortion for six weeks. And that quote just highlights why it's such a big issue when men are in this position of power because for anyone who's ever been pregnant, you do know that even if you're at six weeks in your pregnancy, you have not known about that pregnancy for six weeks. You've likely known about that pregnancy for maybe a week. Sometimes you have, you probably don't know about that pregnancy. Women often do not find out about pregnancy until up to about 12 weeks. So for someone to come out and, of course, you know, a conservative male leader to come out and declare that and to, you know, proliferate these mistruths in the media and, you know, across society and so that other men can pick that up and run with it as though that's, you know, a fair fair kind of assessment of the legislation is just outrageous. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, a lot of people don't know they're pregnant at six weeks. You can often go and get an ultrasound at six weeks and not necessarily hear any kind of heartbeat. So, yeah, maybe he's naive and doesn't know how it works or I doubt it. They know exactly how it works. So that is the context of this. But meanwhile, the Mexico Supreme Court has unanimously ruled that criminalising abortion is unconstitutional. And so basically it's a decision that will pave the way for legislation of access to abortion across the country. The ruling was 10-0. That's the best part that I love to see, 10-0. And so that's from the nation's top court, which uh, basically decided that uh, they must remove abortion from the criminal code and establish a precedent that will have you know, significant flow-on effects across uh, Mexico. Um, so Madeline has written about this this week on Women's Agenda and she talks about the fact that this decision in Mexico basically comes amid a green wave of abortion decriminalisation across Latin America. And so she looks into uh, countries like Argentina where, you know, women have been protesting using green handkerchiefs as symbols of their fight for women's rights so across the last few years. And Argentina also decriminalised abortion up to 14 weeks in December last year. So despite what is going on in the United States, there are, you know, green shoots and more positive things occurring elsewhere. Of course, that doesn't support and help women in Texas right now, nor does it necessarily help women who are facing pregnancy and dilemma uh, elsewhere across the world. But I think just a worthwhile positive outcome out of Mexico. I did really like Bette Midler's call, though, for, for women in Texas as well, just stop having sex with men while as a protest for what is going on, stop having sex with them. And I kind of like it. Um, Maybe it's a a good message for Governor Greg Abbott there, hey? Yes, we'll see. I don't know his marital status or (laughs) who he is. I know he's a Republican governor of Texas. That's about it. And he made that that uh, Okay, so my second win that I just wanted to touch on briefly, and this is more of an opportunity just to share this bit of information as a bit of a story, I guess, just to make sure we cover off on this, because since we launched Women's Agenda, we've long looked at the stats regarding uh, women on boards, particularly across the ASX 200, the number of female CEOs, the number of uh, women in chair positions, um, in executive leadership teams, etc., It's particularly handy across the ASX that it is a really clear and measurable way of looking at progress there because obviously these companies need to report on such appointments. 
So chief executive women run a survey every year that looking at the number of CEOs, it's now looking at the ASX 300, so the largest 300 listed organizations on the ASX. And each year they kind of do additional things and measurements when they do this census and research. This year, for instance, they've looked at the proportion of companies that have any kind of gender targets in place. Now, the win here is that one woman has been appointed to lead an ASX 300 company in the past year. So that was Cathy O'Connor, who was appointed to lead O Media in May 2021. Have we got any more good news coming out of this story? (laughs) The bad news is that Cathy O'Connor was one of just 23 CEO appointments that were made across those 300 organizations. So, you know, pretty much some of the largest employers in Australia, just one of 23 CEO appointments went to a woman. And I read that and I'm like, we've, you know, we've been covering this for so long and we do see the progress regarding women on board. You know, there has been, it's been so slow, but they hit the 30% mark for women on the boards of ASX 200s. Um, we have some boards where women are occupying more than 50% of the positions and the board metric has always been seen as some kind of measure of progress and again really clear and easy to identify and here we are in the CEO ranks and and nothing is changing like it hasn't changed in in years it's so across the the 200 the ASX 200 it's still around 5% it is sorry it is 5% so across the ASX 300 so 6.2% of those CEO positions are held by women and on the ASX 200 it's it's 5%, the same as in 2017. The, there's no change being made. There's, there's, there's no progress here. No. Nah, nah. In some ways, because of the, like, you know, the change in era, we've actually gone backwards. Like, you know, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's pretty. Yeah, totally. Like we, we could, yeah, we could easily go backwards. And that's the thing is that you, just because you achieve some progress doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be sustained, especially when you're looking at things that are kind of like 5% or the first woman appointed or like it's, I was just so stunned to see this. Um, and basically Sam Austin, who leads uh, Chief Executive Women Now and who is a woman I greatly admire and I just think is, it, it's just so wonderful to have her in that position. Um, so she's calling for more organisations to adopt targets they're not necessarily calling for quotas and I imagine that's quite a political difficult situation amongst chief executive women but they are calling for targets for executive leadership teams and particularly focusing on those positions that do have the P&L responsibilities which tends to kind of funnel into the CEO position. Utterly depressing. Okay. (laughs) I long for the day that we don't like declare women firsts you know, like how good will that be when we're not like, oh, this is the first woman or she's the only woman? Like, I mean, come on, surely, yeah. surely. Maybe the day when, you know, maybe we're wanting five CEOs of female, maybe that would be, you know, it seems very achievable. You'd think we'd at least be there by now. You'd think it should be 2.5 in five, but apparently not. So I mean, call us ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> also uh, on the ambition list this week was the Women's Safety Summit, which occurred on Monday and Tuesday, of which Prime Minister Scott Morrison uh, took the liberty of giving the opening address. <laughs> uh, yep. 
Oh, shouldn't just laugh as soon as Scott Morrison's name is muttered, should I? Like as soon as I, like it's which, all I've got. It's all I've got. Additional guests at the uh, Safety Summit included, sorry, additional speakers at the Safety Summit included David Koch, and of which in terms of the invited delegates, we now know that Brittany Higgins wasn't on that additional list and had to go through different avenues in order to be able to listen in to this Safety Summit. So, Tala, now we've published a number of different pieces out of this Safety Summit and I think, again, like let's uh, – put it out there. We have, we're, we're cynical about it. Okay. There you go. There, yep, I'm um, so, but one thing that stood out for me, which I know that Georgie uh, spoke about on last week's podcast and Georgie also wrote about last week. And I kind of did a follow up on this uh, following Scott Morrison's speech, because like many other women across Australia, I was, I was kind of stunned to see him him take that position he gave a really positive speech um he spoke about you know all needing to be part of the change it's everyone's responsibility it's kind of he went there you know it's that same kind of scott morrison approach of you know there's there's nobody to it's everyone's responsibility therefore it's not my responsibility therefore i don't really have much to offer here and but then he didn't share anything about what he was going to do. It's just kind of this idea that this must stop and then that was it. Yep. For a marketing master, I just, I question several of the Prime Minister's decisions of late, you know, giving himself the, the peachy role of standing up as the first keynote speaker at a women's safety summit, probably not the best look. Um, the objects of travelling to, you know, Sydney and having Father's Day with your kids while the rest of Australia can't, you know, do the same, probably not the best look. Like there's just been a slew of, of different choices that he's made recently and I I feel like he's kind of falling apart at the seams. Um, well, but- I mean, he's been falling, I mean, he's been, the, the Father's Day thing, it's up there with the Hawaiian trip. It's There's nothing that has been learnt of that that, and, and you know, the Father's Day thing, and I've heard a number of commentators look at this and it's this, it, it was, I, I think it was technically legal what he did. But then it just, why, like, I know it's hard and, I, and I, you know, and I think other politicians have clearly been engaging in this, including from the opposition, and that's important to, to think about here because there, there might be a reason why there hasn't been kind of a push from the opposition to look at what Scott Morrison did and, and, and kind of cast any any kind of issues with it. But again, it just, you know, most Australians just are not having that opportunity to spend Father's Day uh, with their, their their parents, most adult Australians. And it also comes against the images that we saw of people, and th- this really stood out for me, on the Queensland border, kind of attempting to celebrate Father's Day over these, these barricades. But people can't go to funerals. Like, let's be real here. Like, you know, there are big sacrifices that Australians are making right now. And I get it. Like, I get that the Prime Minister has young kids and it must be tough. And it's been weeks that he's been away from them. That is a pretty shitty situation. But at the same time, you have to set a precedent. You have to set the example. And when everyone else is doing it extraordinarily hard right now, you have to do the same. Um, And I just, I hate this 
idea from him and this, you know, perpetuated behaviour of trying to worm his way out of something, of, you know, over-explaining what his actions are. And even if technically, yes, you were able to do that, the ACT Health Minister let you back in, it was all good. If you're needing to do that all the time, it means there's an issue, you know. It means that you're not doing what Australians expect of you and what they feel um, would be empathetic right now. And that's a real problem. And I think he he really just has an incredibly huge empathy void. Um, and that's, you know, his his biggest downfall, really. Mm. Um, I might just add on that before we should actually talk about the summit, but he did, the, the, the piece of this that made it bad for me was that he did post on his Instagram a photo of him with his family, noting that it was taken months ago. He never said that he wasn't seeing his family that day, but I, I think it was kind of implied that he was trying to suggest that he wouldn't be seeing his family that day, you know, to say, oh, this photo was taken months ago and happy Father's Day. And that, that sort of suggests that you're not with your family today when he actually was. And so uh, to go to your point of, uh, you know, him maybe not having empathy, I mean, clearly he knew that that would upset some people. So why would you post an older photo? Anyway, let's get to the safety summit. Yes, the safety summit. Um, look, I mean, there's hard to it's hard to really dissect the safety summit because anything that I've read so far and anything that I watched in the actual summit, there were some good sessions for sure. Um, but I just I feel like it needs to stretch so far beyond one hour panel sessions on you know various topics, and that's been the advice and um, and that's been the the criticism of of many experts after this event. Um, it will be interesting to see whether or not there are some clear outcomes that come from the summit. I haven't to this point seen any. But look, I just, I think some of the decisions made in the summit itself, you know, you you mentioned the fact that they brought on David Koch to talk about domestic violence. I mean, yes, sure, he's the ambassador of a, a program for high school students um, within the, the AFL club that he represents. But like there are so many other experts that you could call on who have who work full time in these roles, who are at the a- absolute kind of frontline services of domestic violence, who really understand acutely the problems at play. David Koch is not that guy. And a mistake from the government to put someone like that um, on a on a panel. Um, about such a serious topic, about, you know, a situation that is impacting hundreds of thousands of women. And especially when, you know, that there were so many people missing from that agenda. And obviously you can't get to everyone, but there were, there were you know, representatives from different marginalised groups that were not represented. There were key survivors who you'd expect to hear from who were not included. And the fact that they go and organize this this talk fest and again I don't even know what the outcomes or the conclusions were if there were any outcomes I'm presuming not but once again I can't help but think that you've got all these people who dedicate their entire lives and careers to this issue and are constantly sharing their recommendations with the Morrison government it's not like they're short of ideas or you know actions or um, the plan on what needs to be done and yet they continue to go ignored. And, you know, even in the the days just before the summit, we saw um, a couple of hundred organisations in this space, along with thousands of other experts on on women's safety and and family violence, issue a set of really clear recommendations um, in an open letter to 
those participating, well, to the Morrison government in line with with the safety summit, and it just it was <laughs> got completely ignored. <laughs> like, what what is the point? And I, I sense that maybe one of the outcomes will be that we're going to come up with another, we're going to do some more research so we can come up with a plan. So, you know, maybe we can release again something like Respect at Work, which we saw, you know, Kate Jenkins did a, a wonderful job with the Respect at Work report. It gets released, unfortunately, at a really bad time due to COVID. I think it was around March last year. So it, it kind of got forgotten and left in a drawer for a year before the Morrison government even responded to it. And even that Respect at Work report, we've seen um, how, and which I know you would have, you got into with Georgie last week, but 55 recommendations, only six were legislated last week. Um, they don't all require legislation, but we don't know what's happening to those other recommendations. And once again, I feel like it's just this, this, this delay. We'll just delay this. We'll just delay this just to get through another election. Delay this, delay this, pretend that we're kind of interested, pretend that something's on the agenda. Totally. But do everything possible to put and it one off. Of those, the, one of the, you know, most fundamental of those recommendations was basically um, enforcing this positive duty um, from employers um, to prevent workplace sexual harassment. But why was that not implemented? Why was that not legislated? That's not legislated because, you know, even though that's represented in the Sex Discrimination Act, it's not represented in um, industrial relations. So what is the government trying to do there? And that's a very specific specific recommendation that would have mass um, would have mass kind of impact on a lot of women. And uh, I, I just... Yeah, I mean, they've said that they haven't taken anything off the table. Nothing's being rejected, but you have to you have to wonder what their rationale is there. Yeah, yeah. If and if any of our listeners do want to get a better understanding of um, what this positive duty recommendation actually is and what it means, I encourage you to go and read Sue Williamson's piece uh, that we've republished from the conversation, where she does offer a really strong explainer on it. I, I heard this quote from Sam Austin yesterday on ABC Radio National and Sue has actually shared this in her piece also. And basically Sam notes that, you know, once you make it a duty, employers pay attention. They know that there are consequences for failing to provide that environment. And so and, and Sam notes it is also a simple amendment. It is well supported. You know, it's well it's supported by chief executive women who are women representing some of the biggest organisations in Australia, and it's a way to say that when women feel safe at work, they they want to keep working. You'd think. You'd, you'd think, think that's a pretty simple <laughs> equation. Speaking of simple equations, Tyler, I want to get to your interview yes. with Grace Jennings, author of The Yes Woman. <laughs> so saying yes is not always a simple equation in uh, from what from what Grace says. And um, this book's a really interesting one. Obviously, um, I'll, I'll introduce Grace in just a, a moment, but I encourage anyone to pick this up. For me, it was really, um, it was a big eye-opener because I, like you, um, I'm always... You know, I always feel compelled to say yes to opportunities. I feel um, that, you know, they that's the way to get ahead. And I think, you know, in a lot of senses it is and, and we need to keep an open mind and we need to um, be as fearless as possible. But I think the one of the, the huge issues for women 
um, is that we say yes because we're trying to people please and we're trying to do the right thing um, and often it's to our detriment because we're actually and we end up missing out on opportunities and career progress because of the things that we're saying yes to that aren't necessarily that that end up chewing up our time really um, and not helping us in any meaningful way. Um, so Grace does a bit of a deep dive into this, so we can jump to that interview now. In a world that teaches girls to be yes women, saying no is a radical feat. This is the opening line to the blurb of Grace Jenning Edquist's new book, The Yes Woman. In it, she delves into the phenomenon of obligation that many women feel when they agree to any and every opportunity. It's an attitude that's causing many of us to come unstuck, overwhelmed, and miss out on the real career breaks we need and deserve. Grace joins me on the podcast today to talk through her findings and teach us how to say no. Thanks so much for making time to have a chat. Thanks so much for having me, Tyler. I'm thrilled to be here. Okay, well, tell me a little bit about the catalyst for this book. What made you want to dive into this space? Sure. So basically, I have always been what I now call a yes woman. So total uh, people pleaser, total perfectionist, always tried to do everything right to a high standard. Um, and I think I operated in this way of being of wanting to be sort of everything to everyone, and then also wanting to do that perfectly. So I sort of... Um, kind of managed to get away with that, albeit in a state of anxiety and stress for a long time. But then two years ago, when I had my first child, I really suffered um, a huge state of burnout, severe anxiety. And about four months after I became a mum, I just remember sobbing to my own mum, like, I am just so freaking exhausted. I could walk into the ocean. I'm just completely burnt out. Um, And I ended up actually checking into a perinatal mental health unit. which was a real turning point and became the catalyst for this book. So I remember being in this perinatal mental health unit and there was nothing to do there. Like, you know, phones were off. They had this rule and it was kind of a bit of mental space that I needed. But we also did have to go to this um, group therapy thing. And I remember the psychologist in this group therapy telling me and the other new mums there, we're all women, she said, raise your hand if you've ever... Uh, had had a struggle saying no or setting boundaries in place with people and we all raised our hands and she said keep your hands up if you're a perfectionist we all had our hands up she said keep your hands up if you're a people pleaser and you hate letting other people down and being seen of as rude or selfish and we all had our hands up and it kind of struck me and I don't mean to simplify the complexities of mental health and the other you know backgrounds of these women but one thing we all agreed on is we had in common this kind of tendency to try to do too much to say yes to, to other people's demands and requests and invitations and also to sort of tacitly say yes to the unspoken expectations of society around the way we should look, the image we should present to the world, the way we should take on that mental load of, you know, being the ones to buy the family's holiday presents, (laughs) all of this stuff. So after I came out of that unit, I actually started researching it and realised that there are so many gendered aspects to these tendencies of saying yes, perfectionism, people pleasing. Um, And I thought this is actually so much bigger than just me. So while I do sort of put myself in the book because I think, you know, it only, it only is fair to really be honest about my own imperfections. You can't write a book about overcoming perfectionism and, and not admit, you know, your own imperfections. But it really become became so much more than just my own story and so much more than a memoir and really became about how can women collectively sort of reclaim our power and our time and our energy by, by mastering this saying no and overcoming some of this perfectionism, people-pleasing tendency. Yeah. Yes, it is definitely a book that spoke to me and I 
I know exactly that feeling of just wanting to please everyone around you and and really kind of not having the ability to to say no and draw a line in the sand with with so many things. Um, but why do you think that that is a pressure felt so much more acutely by women and not men, and particularly mothers, I guess? Mm. Look, it's a good question, and I should start by saying there are some men and some non-binary people who have read the book or part of it and said, oh, I totally relate. And my husband had a read of an early draft and was like, I think I'm a yes woman. (laughs) You know, I do a lot of this stuff as well. So, you know, it's like a lot of people of all genders will be able to take things from the book. But um, I had this hunch after that sort of light bulb moment in the mental health unit um, that there was something about the fact it was all women in this unit um, and we had such similar experiences And when I dug into the research, I did find that there are studies out of uh, Australia, the US, the UK, showing that women identify more as perfectionists and more as people pleasers. They say, they report that they have more trouble saying no. Uh, And then when I went, I went down the path of interviewing about 200 people for this book. So everyone from experts to ordinary everyday people about how they learn to say no. And what I kept hearing is just, um, I think that there's this real aspect of socialization, the gendered way that we're brought up from from infancy really to to be, I call it nice with a capital N. So it can be almost a toxic niceness of having to be um, self-sacrificial and put other people's needs first. But it's not a genuine kindness. It's kind of more of a of a real kind of drain yourself until your own cup is empty and and it kind of can come at the at the expense of our own well-being, our own mental health, I suppose. So I think women are really raised with this message of, you know, be agreeable, don't rock the boat. Um, your value is being in being liked more than being respected, as one of the psychologists I interviewed told me. So it's definitely, as it turns out, a gendered element. And that's why the book is called The Yes Woman, even though admittedly aspects of it, you know, can be interpreted more widely by all genders. Mm. You reference a quote by Jane Caro in the book who talks about this notion of being a good feminist and her frustration that to be one you seem to have to put in a lot of unpaid labour to help further the advancement of other women. Women are often generous with their time on this front, but why does this sometimes set a bad example? Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting thing that Jane Caro said. She wrote it. She wrote a whole article about it um, called, I think it was called, No, I Will Not Be Your Unpaid Mentor. Um, and there is this kind of idea that a lot of people like myself who are passionate about gender equality, we have an instinct to help out for free any kind of cause that, that is aligned. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think sometimes it's it's fabulous and I have been involved in volunteer causes that I and continue to be that I absolutely don't regret. But I think... On the one hand, there's a problem with large corporations kind of, um, I guess they call it femvertising or, or pinkwashing issues. So they might just have kind of their own corporate agenda and they might attach the hashtag feminist to it and then they might be asking feminist speakers like Jane Carrow or someone else to to speak for free at their women's empowerment meeting to a, a room full of rich lawyers or something. And it's like, well, if you actually look at how much this this writer is paid and then it's a large multinational corporation that's that's exploiting them really like that's that's really ironic that's not feminism to me that's just reinforcing um you know the systems of exploitation and particularly um and I interviewed the fabulous writer and advocate Carly Findlay in the book about um the importance of saying no to certain types of unpaid work and she was saying that you know, people with disability, women with disability are often um, called upon disproportionately to do this kind of unpaid labour. Um, I think the same is, can be said of probably women of colour as well. And so I think um, you do have to be a bit careful of 
what you say, what we feel we must say yes to and not feel compelled to kind of give of ourselves if it is just, I, I would say, particularly a larger corporation asking us to do free work. But Carly Finley also says the point of, you know, some NGOs, if they have a budget for, uh, for example, catering for an event, then they should also have a budget for speakers. You know, there's no reason why the women who are actually the centrepiece of this event shouldn't be paid. But I think also Jane Caro has outlined in that article sometimes where she will say yes. So if it's a quick and easy favour that's no skin off her nose, if it's an organisation that really isn't funded and won't be able to get the support elsewhere, if it's something that really speaks to your heart, um, then you might say, absolutely, I'll do that. But then on the other hand, there are are examples of, um, I know Zara McDonald and Michelle Andrews, who I interviewed in the book of the Shameless podcast, they talk about how they maybe three times a week get these emails from places being like, why don't you just give a free seminar on women's empowerment? And they just want to scream at the screen. And it's like, why would we do that? (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you get it a lot, but, um, but as someone who is often called upon um, to do a lot of that, that work. And I think often because um, I'm a woman of a, a culturally diverse background as well, there's probably a little bit more of it uh, that sense I think yeah we we definitely need to to do better and organizations need to do better obviously they've got big funding and big budgets for these events that they're putting on so mm-hmm. they- and I think there's a concern and Carly Finley makes this point so powerfully that when you do say yes to these to these things you're kind of also inadvertently um, setting the bar or the expectation for other women or for other women with disability or whatever your your experience might be um, that that will be the norm, um, that they'll be able to keep asking women to do this in future for free. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Um, I want to ask you, so we published a study last week about how young women are feeling um, about their career prospects now that they've been forced to work remotely um, and they feel like they're missing out on opportunities because of this. Do you think that that's something um, felt by a big cohort of women? And, and if so, will our urge to say yes be exacerbated during this period? I think that's a really interesting question. Um, One thing I will say is a lot of women did report to me when I interviewed them for this book that they had this feeling that if they were, say, casual workers um, and they felt they needed to be constantly available and say yes all the time to kind of be seen as the ones who were keen, the ones who could be relied on, and then they'd be given more shifts. Um, So they had this feeling like I can never say no to my boss um, and that's going to be the way to get ahead. And I totally get where they're coming from. I understand that instinct. But a lot of other women, a lot of women also reported that this constant saying of yes can actually undermine them in a way. And it's difficult because it can it can work against you and leave you in a position where you're you're really burnt out. You're not able to do your job to the best of your ability. Um, or you can get it go into this panic mode where you're saying yes to your boss all the time, but you're kind of saying yes in a non-strategic way. So it might be saying yes to the wrong thing. So a lot of us are saying yes, for example, to, I say us, it's not, I, I hope that I don't actually do this um, in my current job, which I love, but uh, a lot of women say yes to, for example, they call it hope labour. So you do this unpaid free extra work, like academics doing um, mentorships and stuff in the hope that that'll get them promoted, um, in the hope that that will get them this dream position, they'll get tapped on the shoulder and recognised because they're enthusiastic team players. But if you're doing a whole lot of this non-promotable, unpaid extra work, you can actually just whittle down your your time and energy that you need to kind of do your core KPIs of your job. So, yes, I understand the instinct of having to do more to get ahead, having to say yes to more to get ahead, but I, I would warn women against that trap of I have to say yes to everything indiscriminately 
because it actually can backfire and it can just see you overloaded and unpromoted. And then meanwhile, Mike in marketing is zooming above you getting promoted because he's just said yes, 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 really strategically to all the promotable stuff. And how annoying. This is Mike. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, look, and I think when we're, you know, when you've talked about those statistics of burnout and how, um, how so many women are facing that, I think that it's really problematic and and confronting to think that women might be experiencing that even more acutely during this period um, in which we've had to take time out of the workforce to juggle competing priorities and, and different things, but also be, you know, maintaining that that face and presence within our career and making sure that we're getting ahead there. So um, I, f- I feel like that's a real concern. Um, I want to ask you about... Um, well, I mean, I guess I want to ask about how you do say no, especially if you're talking about saying no to someone who's potentially influential and who could make things difficult for you. So there are definitely uh, a couple of chapters in the book that really go into the nitty gritty of how to say no in particular situations. But I think that I can run you through sort of three or four of my favourite Um And I think one thing that people need to get really comfortable with is this idea that saying no doesn't have to be aggressive, it doesn't have to be confrontational. Uh, A lot of women think that they've reported to me, I don't like saying no because I don't like conflict, I like to avoid conflict. And it's like, where did we get this idea that putting boundaries assertively in place has to be conflict? So I think um, really really approach saying no as, look, I'm putting my boundaries in place, but it can be in a, in a kind way. And I think that's exemplified in my book by something that I call the Tanya Plibersek no, because I wrote to Tanya Plibersek and said, can I interview you? And she wrote back the most gracious rejection letter ever. And it was so kind and and thoughtfully worded that I almost was happier than if she'd said yes, you know, it was, and, I was, and then she actually, she's such a legend. She, she wrote this formal letter, it was typed out, and then she signed it and she wrote in her own handwriting, you can use this however you want. This is how you do it. So she basically was giving me permission to, you know, use this as an example in the book. Um, and what she did in that letter is she just very graciously um, said, basically, I appreciate the opportunity and it sounds like an exciting project. I'm paraphrasing here. Then she explained her predicament, she, something like, unfortunately, I have so much, so many offers at the moment. I have so many demands on my time. I'm not able to except at this time, but I'm sure it'll be a success and I wish you all the best. So all this stuff of your acknowledging um, that you're humble that they've asked you and you've made it sort of a policy that you can't respond to this kind of request so it's not an individual attack on your own demand. Um, and, and that to me is a really good way to go about it. But I think the other couple of main takeaway tips that I use all the time now are firstly buying yourself some time. So if someone, be it a boss or um someone else ask you to do something, you can kind of, rather than launch into yes autopilot, which a lot of us yes women do, we can sort of say, oh, thanks so much for thinking of me. I'll just check my schedule and get back to you. And that buys a bit of time to go and assess, okay, what are my priorities? Does this make sense? And then you can go back with a carefully crafted no later if need be. Um, And I think the other really big one is you have to check in with yourself about whether this is something that you would say yes to today or tomorrow because it's something that is a priority and is important or whether it's something that you might agree to in a month but when it comes to that time in a month you're going to go why did I ever say yes to this so if if it's something that and then you're going to end up cancelling at the last minute it's going to be more awkward so if it's something that you know that you would drop everything and do it tomorrow because it's that important to you then say yes lock it in in a month that's fine 
that's a good guideline I've started to use all the time. That's also courtesy of Zara and Michelle from, from Shameless. They had a lot of good tips. That is, that's a very good one. I do like the, you know, look to Tanya Plibersek as well. I think. <laughs> that's just classic advice for, for everyone. Um, yeah. Look, Grace, I could talk to you about this book for so long and I, I genuinely think it's it's such a important read and one that, that women do pick up. Um, just in terms of any last advice to, yes, women listening to this, aside from the, th- the fact that they should definitely go out and buy this book, um, <laughs> is there anything else you can share with us? I would just say um, it's not like you can just decide one day, okay, I'm going to stop saying yes to everything and then it will be suddenly easy. Like I think you can probably read the book and then, you know, or whatever you need to do to start learning how to say no. And then it might actually take a little bit of constant vigilance for at least for the short term when you're kind of building up that muscle. And you have to do, like any muscle, a certain amount of reps before it becomes um, more doable. Um, and I think for me, as a, I call myself now a reformed-ish yes woman, you know, I still do notice myself getting that pull to say yes and that thought of, oh, they're going to think I'm so me. I'm going to feel like such a B word if I say no and push back on this thing. But I now have this um, instinctive kind of alarm bell that goes off when I feel myself leaning towards the the yes, 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 when I just don't have capacity. And I'm so much better now at just being able to use that as a a tell that I need to reassess and um, use some of my strategies. So I would just say keep working at it. It, it won't happen straight away, but it but it will happen. So to paraphrase, it sounds like a big that, doesn't it? <laughs> Keep trying, you'll get there. It does get easier. Grace, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you to Grace. Thank you, Tyler, for that interview. I think, uh, I don't know if you ever do this, but sometimes I have this idea that I'm going to just wake up and I'm going to change this thing about myself, which I know is not particularly great for my well-being or for my family or for my work or for whatever it is. And you think like, uh, if I'm just going to wake up, I'm going to start doing that and everything will be different. So what I liked from Grace there was that idea that that won't necessarily happen, that it is a process. You can't just expect yourself to completely transform on this overnight. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, she's packed this book full of amazing tips um, and I think it's just a really interesting one because it it really looks at the history of this phenomenon of women saying yes, um, which I think if we we look in the mirror or we look to our sisters or our mums or our friends, um, or any of the women in our lives, we will see that that same same um, phenomenon is happening with them too. So um, pick this book up. It's a, it's a really good one. It's out with a firm press at the moment. <laughs> um, I want to note, Ange, and we haven't said this um, in the podcast yet, but it is Ange's birthday, so a huge happy birthday. Um, and, you know, I know that you probably can't have the celebration that you want in lockdown right now, but That's right. there's a giant cake down. Uh, there's a giant cake downstairs, so I'm I'm very happy with that situation. So <laughs> the giant cake does sound good, but when we are reunited, and I feel like we will be at some point, I have I have hope, um, but we will partake in many glasses of wine. Yeah, I, I wanted to end on one little point about birthdays and decades and eras and things like that because I am in the final year of a decade meaning I enter a new decade which one is it (laughs) oh god I'm gonna leave everybody guessing um so (laughs) um no but I wanted to say so I'm turning 40 next year so I'm 39 today and 
we were having this conversation with uh, some people in our team. I don't know, Tyler, if you actually you were present on the Slack conversation at that point. It was kind of as we were approaching deadline, which is just the right time to have this kind of in-depth big conversation about your life. But I mentioned the fact that I had this really vivid memory of being with um, one of my really good friends one night in our early 20s and she uh, had been going through something that was particularly uh, terrible at that point and we were both feeling quite lost with with our lives and and things that were going on and she turned to me and said I just wish I was 30 and it always stuck with me because I was like what do you mean why would you want to be 30 you know like it just had no sort of I, I could not comprehend it but then I got it was that idea that this you have this kind of thinking, well, you know, at 30 I will have everything sorted, I'll know what I'm doing with my life, it will, you know, everything will be okay, and which isn't true. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's not how it works. I'm sorry. That's not how it works. But I do think that with age there are um, certain things that we cross where we might find a few more assurances about ourselves, where we might understand ourselves a little bit more, where we might you know, be able to identify that we say yes to a lot of opportunities when maybe we shouldn't be saying, when maybe we should be saying no, whatever that is. So I'm kind of not dreading turning 40 at all. If anything, I look at it as a, as a new era. The 30s for me have definitely been an era of having kids and dealing with young kids and no sleep and that sort of thing. And I kind of see how the, the, this next period might be a little bit different and maybe able to enjoy th- those children a little bit more without being so sleep deprived. Yeah. Um, anyway, I don't know if you've ever had those thoughts. but you're not, you're not 40 yet, so stop wishing your life away. And just No, it's not quite that. It's just that I'm not kind of <laughs> dreading it. And then I did have the conversation with somebody who recently turned 50 and she made the point, she's like, yeah, I've just, the, being in my 50s is just the greatest decade that I've been having, that, you know, her, her kids were older and, you know, that, that kind of sense of um, no, 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 you're not taking any bullshit from anyone anymore, but it's not the same for everyone, but just different experiences with it. My dad says to me every single year that every year is the best year he's ever had. And, I mean, he does live in a ridiculously privileged white man bubble, but <laughs> but I do actually, I like that that's his perspective, that every year he really does um, think that his life is is just so great and he does pleasure in all the little that's well done mr lambert i'm happy to hear that okay (laughs) all right we should move on thank you thank you tyler thanks thank you for listening to the women's agenda podcast a reminder that you can access all the uh, issues and topics that we discussed in some shape or form on our website including multiple opinions and different perspectives on the safety summit You can also check out that piece that I mentioned about uh, the explainer regarding the positive duty for employers. Uh, You can look at our pieces, um, Afghanistan, the coverage there, as well as the Texas abortion ban, as well as the ASX 300 information that I mentioned and a lot more. You can also get our daily newsletter so that you don't miss out on any of these topics at all. Thank you for listening.